0: Welcome
1: to Out of the Comfort Zone. Mission, purpose, engagement, and even increasingly inclusivity are all the hot buzzwords for the companies that I'm talking to. And each one of those promises greater productivity and ultimately greater profitability, or so the claims go. We're also, though, seeing more and more employees, especially millennials, vote with their feet in search of a greater sense of purpose, greater fulfillment, and a mission that's more inspiring than increasing shareholder returns. So if you're skeptical about this notion of mission, purpose, engagement, and inclusivity, okay, but I think it's here to stay for a while because I think our current population is actually hungry for it. In fact, we maybe have always been hungry for it. We're just talking about it now. So there's a lot of buzz and not a lot of guidance. Today, I want to focus on the latest research on becoming more fulfilled and finding purpose and we're going to address this whether you're an individual in an average organization, what can you do, as well as a leader of an enterprise or a leader of a team within an organization. Now, my guests today have an awful lot of experience in this topic. Aaron Hurst is an Ashaka fellow, an award-winning entrepreneur, and a globally recognized leader in the fields of purpose at work and social innovation. Currently, he's the CEO of Imperative, and he's the founder of Taproot Organization, which he led for a dozen years. He's the author of the Purpose economy, and he's written or been featured in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Bloomberg TV. And he also edits Fast Company's Purposeful CEO series. So, Aaron, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be with you, Wanda.
1: Now, in addition, we have Nicole Rush, and Nicole is Imperative's head of enterprise purpose strategy. I can barely get those words out, Nicole. Nicole empowers purpose-driven HR leaders nationwide, and she's using 15 years of enterprise talent development, along with her research on fulfillment, to advise clients on how to do a purpose-powered social learning platform. So, Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks, Linda. I appreciate the conversation. Okay. So, Aaron, let me start with you. You know, I made the statement that I think purpose is here to stay. And whether you want to call it purpose or mission or engagement or whatever else for the moment, I'll leave holding. Why do you think it's such an important topic? And why today?
2: Uh, There's so many different threads to that. I think a big part of it as it comes to this topic around employees is just in the last 20 30 years, we've really started to understand how the human brain works. We started to understand positive psychology. We've just really started to unpack you know, who we are as human beings and what we need from relationships, what we need from work, um, the ways in which we need to grow. So we really, for the first time, have concrete scientific-backed research that truly sort of shows that for human beings to thrive as Individuals, but to also to contribute at their maximum sort of potential in a team setting. Um, that having a sense um, of doing something bigger than yourself, having a sense of the work you're doing matters, um, to feel the sense that your work is more than just a paycheck. Um, we see in the science uh, truly is sort of the differentiator, and, and I will talk more about that. But this is here to stay because it's science. This is not a fad. This is a science. The fad may be labels, um, but the actual science that sort of undergirds all of this is, A, pretty damn brand new, and um, is pretty conclusive.
1: Okay. All right. So let me do a skeptical view. Um, I was talking with someone not too long ago about their sense of purpose and what mattered to them and what kept them engaged and fulfilled at work. And what the person said to me, I'm going to quote from them and then I'm going to counter that a bit. They said is, I felt I always worked in order to provide for my family so that my family had the things I wanted them to have. How often do you hear that kind of statement or is that just scratching the surface? I'm curious, Nicole, I mean, how often
2: do you hear that?
3: I, we definitely hear it. I think that there's, I think that there's definitely a sort of a hierarchy. Um, there, is, that is table stakes to be able to provide for your family. But I have a very personal lesson in that, in the sense that both of my parents were very, very able to providing for me, and yet they both decided that that just simply wasn't enough, and in fact made career pivots that had a pretty dramatic impact on their income, and it changed our lifestyle. But they were. Far, far happier for it. And so I think there are any number of studies that will tell us that this is a generational thing, this this gravitation toward purpose in the workplace. But, um, I, you know, I know plenty of boomers, I'm sorry, um, uh, boomer generation folks and Gen Xers like myself who have fundamentally decided that they want to have a different role, a different relationship with, with work and, and change the role of work in their lives.
1: Yeah. I think for this individual, by the way, that there is a deeper sense of purpose, and it's just that that was the easy answer to give and the thing that people gave so often. I think today, Erin, back to your point, we have language to be able to talk about this in a way that has more meaning. So, Nicole, let me turn to you. Why do you think purpose is such an important topic? Is it just that it's a generational shift, or is it more than that?
3: No, I, I I do think it's more than that. And one of the things that's interesting, one of the things that we ask when 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 we go into a room full of a lot of people twenty, thirty, forty people, we always say, you know, what lessons did you have early in your life about the relationship that you had to work? Um, and a lot of people talk about parents who said just what you said. That person said is um, it's just to earn a paycheck. And so one of the things that we have really decided to challenge is is it is that in fact enough? And going one of the things we often hear too is. Um, it's okay if I'm not fulfilled at work because I'm providing for my family, and we're seeing more and more that individuals we work with and companies that we work with are challenging that, which is why um, why, we're, why there's so much more demand for the work that we do.
1: Okay, fair enough. All right, before I get into the deep, the research and all that kind of jazz, I want to talk a little bit about each of you. So, Erin, let me start with you. Why are you doing this work? I mean, you've got lots of things that you've done and can do and are still doing in your life. So, why does this topic matter to you?
2: So for me, like at a personal level, I'm an entrepreneur. And as an entrepreneur, I'm sort of always looking at, you know, what are challenges in the world? Um, what are people's needs? But then also, like, when do I have an insight about being able to help people um, with something that matters. And I think I've just been really blessed to be able to do work where I feel like I'm looking at what is the biggest problem in society. And to me, that is fundamentally the issue that people are not fulfilled at work. Uh, When people are not fulfilled at work, uh, we know that they're not fulfilled in their lives. We know it affects them as citizens, as family members, um, as employees. You know, we look at the series of issues from politics to health to education to the economy I and mean, everything threads back to the fact that if people are not fully awake and taking responsibility for what they do the majority of their time um, it is basically sucking so much of the energy spirit um and of humanity out of our society. So to be able to do work, um, to try in whatever little ways we can to sort of help more people be fulfilled, to me, is the greatest challenge of our generation. And it's the thing that's going to unlock so many of these sort of other challenges. So I think a lot of the other challenges in society right now are an outgrowth of people not having an honest relationship with themselves, not having an honest relationship with their work, um, and therefore sort of not taking responsibility for their role in society and broader Level so, to me that's sort of the the inspiration for it at a societal level. I think at a, at a personal level, you know, I think it's something that like most entrepreneurs, the thing that you focus on is the thing you struggle with yourself. And I think for me, just sort of, I've always been really curious about like what makes a good day versus a bad day at work, and just trying to figure out myself how to always make my own work more fulfilling, um, how to build stronger relationships at work, how to make the impact I want to, how to grow, and I think. When you do that work personally and start to see that it works, um, start to see um, the potential, you want to bring that to more people.
1: Okay. Wow. I love that one. That's pretty empowering. It makes me want to come and join Imperative. Nicole, how about for you? Why do you do this work? How did you get started here?
3: Um, my pathway to this work was, was more personal. Um, I I was actually indirectly impacted by 9/11. So I was I was living and working in San Francisco at the time and you know early in my career and I had a great job and I was in a corner office et cetera. And then this 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 horrible event happened and what I couldn't understand is why there were so many people around the world cheering and I was complaining about it a lot and uh, so I had a friend sit me down. The woman who um, was an immigrant to the United States and she sat me down and she basically said, look. Quit complaining. The reason people are cheering is because the United States finally got what it deserved, and that was really like a, a punch in the gut to me. And so I realized I, I needed to get a get a different perspective, and so I started applying to any and every job that would take me outside of the U.S. and ended up working in um, Uganda for a year. And I was working with a lot of Ugandans, but also a lot of Canadians. And I'll tell you, there is nothing like a group of Canadians to give you perspective on your foreign policy as an American. So um, I got everything I wanted there. Um, And when I came back, you know, it was a fantastic experience. And when I came back, I wanted nothing to do with corporate America, but I did need to pay the bills. And so my my six-week contract position at Microsoft turned into a 10-year career. And it was great. And um, what I realized, though, in retrospect is that my my satisfaction at Microsoft and my fulfillment at Microsoft really had a lot to do with me hacking my own job around what was going to give me fulfillment. And when I when I was not able to do that any longer, is when I started to look around. And someone sent me this job description um, that it was like a no job description I had ever seen. Now usually you've got your long description of what the work is and your responsibilities and the, and the requirements. This was one sentence about what the job involved. And then it was three very robust paragraphs of what relationships I would have an opportunity to build, the, um, uh, the, the type of impact I would be able to have on, on individuals, on organizations, and on society, and then what kinds of personal and professional growth opportunities I would have. And I was, I mean, I think I, had, I was on the phone that night um, trying to go after this thing, and uh, what I realized in retrospect is that those those are the three things that are really what we've discovered are the building blocks of purpose. Um and so I've I've gotten to come here and really help other people do what I did for so many years just out of instinct, which is to hack my job around what's gonna fulfill me. The problem is, you know, most people, statistically only about thirty percent of people really have the instincts about what that means. And so the rest of us really need need the tools and the and the pathway and the environment um, to be able to 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 bring that fulfillment into our work. So, Short sure answer,
1: probably interrupted 9-11, Wanda. <laughs> no, no, it's a much better <laughs> answer for the long story. I just want to repeat those three that you say are the building blocks of purpose. One is the relationships you're going to build, the impact you're going to have, and the growth opportunities personally and professionally. Relationships, impact, and growth. Um, I think you just described, by the way, Aaron and Nicole, an interesting way of rethinking job descriptions, that it's less about the tactics of what you are responsible for and a little bit more about the kind of impact, growth, and relationships you're going to build along the way. I have a feeling we'd all be getting more job opportunities, and I think that may have just been an advertisement to go and talk to Imperative as an employer. Okay, so on of that purpose, off that, that mission… To your point,
2: I I think it's also just – it is a much more contemporary way of thinking about jobs because jobs traditionally have been very formulaic and very structured and very narrow. And I think when you give people a definition that gives them more control over it and speaks more to um, who they are as human beings and paints the culture as being human, uh, you attract the people you want to hire. And I think that's just a really important lesson for organizations. And we've seen a number of our partners start to shift the way they write job descriptions, to your point.
1: And it's working then, Aaron? I think so. Even in um, large corporations? Uh, Nicole's, on the
2: team. Nicole's on the team, which to me is um, enough evidence for me personally.
1: All right. Fair enough. Um, I want to talk for a minute about this whole notion of purpose and mission and vision. Um, let's stick with purpose and mission. Vision is a whole other thing in and of itself, but I often find that those two get a Good bit intertwined in people's minds. So I'm thinking about one company in particular whose mission was fundamentally about how their products were going to change the dynamics in their entire industry, the entire industry. Everybody using their products in every shape and form and change how that industry functioned. And that was just core to their reason for being. So their culture was built around it. That meant they hired people who are passionate about it. It meant that they were interested in radical change. And it just was sort of baked into their DNA from day one. Now, they call it a mission. Um, So do you see a difference between this thing about mission and purpose? Or is it really a semantic issue that is just dependent on how we define each one of them. Help me out here. So Aaron, give me your perspective on this, mission versus purpose, or does it matter?
2: I I think there's a lot of consultants out there that make money helping people define these, and they often make money trying to sort of differentiate them. Um, I think it's more in the execution than the label. Um, I think often missions are defined as being about the organization, so you'll see some classic missions that are about being number one in our category. For example, I think a purpose tends to be about something greater than the organization. Um, And I think um, that's where I've seen more of a distinction is there are people who define missions in a way that are about something bigger than the organization, um, but often they're sort of internally focused on the organization's success instead of society's success or the customer's success, which is where purpose tends to play more of a role.
1: Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. So the mission frequently is something about the organization, and I'm going to say the organization's position in the marketplace is often part of that whole notion of mission. So the organization's success. But when we're in this direction of purpose, regardless of where you call it, it's about something beyond the organization, so society and the customer. All right, I buy that I definition. One way
2: think about that too. I think about like sports teams, you know, their mission is to win the championship, to win the game, which is very much about their position. Um, But the purpose of a team is about bringing communities together, about entertaining people, about giving people a sense of hope. Um, That's why we love sports and that's the role sports play, for example, in, you know, in most cities. Um, I just find that often sports are a very simple way to explain the difference.
1: Fabulous. That makes a lot of sense to me. I can buy that one completely. Okay. Now, Nicole, let me turn this question to you. And a lot of people are talking about corporate sustainability. And so we all know uh, Pana, Patagonia and their whole mission about giving back to the environment and all that kind of routine. And it's brought in quite a strong following for Patagonian customers. But this whole notion about purpose is not about corporate social responsibility, Right.
3: Yeah, and I, I think that the, the distinction there is, for me, it's really more external versus internal. So externally, you take an example like Patagonia or any number of very, very inspiring companies, and you want to be a part of that, right? You want to, you want to sign up, you want to enlist in that mission. Um, And so you go and you join that organization, but if you get inside of that organization and you are not given the space to form an authentic connection to that mission, then all of a sudden it's really just about something that's for customers and for government, for society, but it really doesn't impact the individual inside the organization. And we actually see this a lot, Wanda, where you've got a company that has that attracts a lot of people, but their first or second year turnover is quite high because there's that second step of how do I act? the individuals within this ecosystem in service of that impact that we want to have, whether it's on the environment or on society or on, on communities, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is about something greater than the organization's success. It's about having an impact in a larger way. That's the purpose piece. But that touches the employee as an employee inside the organization. That's the whole thing. And I want to give a shout out to Ann Bear Thompson's work about brands. And what we're finding about great brands at the moment is that people can get that sense as a customer of what the brand is really about in general and they see that it is connecting to the employees as well, that that's how you treat your employees is really well. So I think that's exciting where this is all going. So um, I'm curious, either of you, can you give me an example about an organization that's adopting purpose and what are they doing and how's it working?
3: I was, I was just going to say, I'll jump in. I have I have the, the um, great pleasure of actually walking side by side with companies as they're doing this. And And I would say it goes back to, Wanda, a lot of what we talked about earlier around the building blocks of purpose, the relationships, the impact, and growth. What companies are starting to recognize is that some of the structures they have in place are actually blocking those three elements. And so you're seeing now, for example, I've got one large client who has introduced a, a fulfillment and purpose conversation as part of their annual performance review. So it's not just about what did you do, and how did you impact stock price, et cetera, but it's also about, well, what were the relationships? Tell me about the impact you have. What meaning did that have for you? And let's use that in service of your future here at X Company. Something else that I see companies doing is, is, is a similar process, but it's part of their career development. We, you know, we hear a lot of companies have engagement surveys, and their, their employees are telling them, look, I don't see a future here. And so rather than saying, well, this, this could be the next role, and this is the next skill, and this is the next training you should have, and this is the next title, Um, It's much more about let's step back and look at what experiences and skills do you have, but also what fulfills you? And so companies are starting to give their employees tools to develop that self-insight so they can then take it and apply it toward um, a future career at that company. And then a third example, and this is one that I find tremendously inspiring and, and frankly disruptive, is companies that are starting to introduce the purpose and fulfillment conversation in the first few weeks on the job. So imagine, Wanda, that you've joined a company for the first time, and instead of, you know, the first week being focused on paperwork and your laptop and meeting all the right people, it's actually about understanding what the purpose of the organization is, and then you getting some self-insight on your own fulfillment drivers, and then carving out some space for you to form an authentic connection to
1: that mission right in your first few weeks on the job. So I would be worried as an employer, you know, I like this idea that we have purpose conversations in the first few weeks and that we talk about the purpose of the organization. That all sounds fabulous. But what if in that first week I engage an employee in a conversation about what fulfills them and we discover really quickly this isn't going to work? Is that that, a a bad thing? That's a
3: million-dollar question, Wanda. Um, So we have a philosophical approach to this, and that is that, and actually I'm going to tease our research a little bit. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but we have a philosophical approach that people can own their own fulfillment at work. They just have to have the tools. And one of the key research questions we asked was, you know, who do you think is responsible for your fulfillment at work? And what we found is that, and I mean, by a, by a vast margin, people actually see themselves as responsible. And so it's really about, it's not about the role. It's role agnostic. It's about giving me the tools to help me understand what gives me fulfillment in the workplace, whether it's, you know, what the fulfillment drivers are or whether it's the building blocks. But then it becomes my responsibility to actually bring those into my role, whatever the role might be. And I think that's, that's, that's the key part of the answer to the question is this is role agnostic. It's, it's not – purpose is not about a role, and in fact, we can give you any number of examples of people that rush to a, a specific role or even a specific industry, maybe going into nonprofit, thinking they're going to find purpose. Now that, that's quite the opposite of what happens. It's not just about a role.
1: This is in- encouraging to me because I certainly have this conversation with a ton of people around coaching conversations. And, you know, my belief always is that if you get focused on what gives you a sense of meaning and purpose in your life, you can do that from almost any job in the wor- in the that you have. It's just a matter of where you put your attention about what you're accomplishing in that job. So, you know, you do this in a much more sophisticated way by talking about the components, the relationship, the growth. And uh, the impact. So I think that's that sounds lovely. Now, through this, you've been talking about this notion of fulfillment. So I said mission, and then we talked purpose, and now we're talking fulfillment. Is there a difference between purpose and fulfillment?
2: So
3: let oh, no, you take that one. Eric. Really
2: is. Yeah, of course. No, I think purpose has much more to do with sort of, sort of the what one's unique contribution. Um, to the world is, what is the impact they want to make. Um, It has much more to do with sort of what uniquely sort of defines... Uh, what is going to bring you a sense of fulfillment? Fulfillment is actually the emotional state um, that you get as a reward when you're basically working in alignment with, you know, your purpose, with your intrinsic motivations. That you're operating out of a healthy psychological place. So fulfillment is much more of like an emotional state. So you're fulfilled or not. Um, you do that when you are working um, in alignment with what truly drives you, which is your purpose.
1: Okay, That's fabulous. That makes sense,
2: Wanda.
1: That makes a ton of sense. I was kind of thinking the two sounded very similar, and they are related. If I'm working with a sense of purpose, I'm understanding the impact that I want to make and the contribution I'm making to the world, then I'm more likely to have a sense of being fulfilled, an emotional state of feeling fulfilled. And that emotional sure. state presumably is what we're all striving for in some way or another. Okay. Not exactly. One question, yeah, one question as a teaser. We're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes. But as a teaser to what I want to talk about in the second half, it strikes me that this whole notion about fulfillment is actually a better framework than engagement. Do you agree with that statement or disagree with that statement?
2: Well, I I, mean, I 100% agree with that statement. I think engagement has come out of a history of looking at how to refine management, how to refine the culture of an organization. I think what psychology... Has shown us, and um, what neuroscience has shown us, is that much of what we experience at work actually is coming out of us and resides within us. It's much more to do with psychology. Um, has much more to do with sort of what we bring to the table. You can have two employees come into the exact same work situation and have the same manager and have radically different experiences because what really is going on is going on inside sort of the, the architecture of their brain. Um, I remember my dad used to read a book when I was younger called The Inner Game of Tennis, and I think <laughs> I always think of that. It's a There's the whole inner game that's going on for folks. And when we focus so much on engagement, we're putting it on managers and we're putting it on culture, which are definitely important. Um, But it's failing to recognize that what's going on is largely um, due to how people are processing experience. And it's that reflection and that ownership that actually is going to define success. Um, And it also takes us away from this culture that has emerged around really – uh, weaponizing engagement and sort of having managers responsible for engagement when in fact. What we really need to do is help people take personal ownership for their, for their own fulfillment.
1: Okay. Uh, that one quote right there, Aaron, I can imagine that lots of managers around the world are shouting with joy. So I just want to emphasize this one. Then we're going to come back in the second half and pick up the research that engagement has largely been putting the responsibility on managers to make sure that their employees are having a good experience and that the focus on fulfillment puts the responsibility on the employee to understand how to process, think about, take actions about their own experience. Did I say that correctly? Brilliant. Well, from my point of view, that is music to my ears because I think that's an awesome way to think about it. I think you're right. Everybody experiences work, a manager, a colleague, um, a conversation differently. And being able to take con- ownership for my own experience gives me an awful lot more sense of power. I feel less at um, the mercy of having a quote unquote good manager or quote unquote bad manager. Okay, perfect timing. For a break. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, though, we're going to pick up with some uh, breaking research on this whole notion of fulfillment and what we've learned about it and what makes a difference and so on. With me today is Aaron Hurst and Nicole Rush. They're with Imperative and um, experts in this whole notion of purpose, mission, if you will, and fulfillment. We'll be right back.
0: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum Inc. Helping organizations get it and keep it. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. That's Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back. With me today is Aaron Hurst. Aaron is CEO of Imperative. He's the author of The Purpose Economy, and he's the author of Fast Companies. Purposeful CEO Series. Try saying that five times in a row. Nicole Resch is also with me today. She's Imperative's Head of Enterprise Purpose Strategy, where she's working with purpose-driven HR leaders and combining her experience of 15 years in talent development and her research on fulfillment. Now, we've been talking about purpose And the notion that having a sense of purpose is a sense of something larger than you and than your organization's success. So having an impact on the society, on individuals, on something, on customers, something outside of the organization. And that's what distinguishes it from something like mission, which is about the organization's success. We've also been talking about fulfillment, this sense of how I have the feeling, the emotional experience of being fulfilled at work. And that perhaps fulfillment might be a better indicator of um, success, shall we say, than engagement. And that was just the teaser at the end, but I want to come back. There's research now to back this up. So Erin, Explain, walk us through how you get to the conclusion that engagement is not the place we want to be spending our energies.
2: No, absolutely. I, part of it, Wanda, really goes back to like looking at it in a historical context. Um, so just, if you don't mind, just... Yeah. Share a little bit about why we came to this. Cause I think if you think about thousands of years ago, there was no such thing as a job. There was no such thing as a manager. It was just about like survival, right? And spending time with our clans, our families. Um, we saw with you know the rise of the agrarian economy for the first time. You had these landowners and you had people working the land, but the power structure was such that the landowners had all the power and the labor had almost none. And their sort of measure of success was you know survival. It was Die, work or die, um, and there was very little effort put into thinking about, you know, what is that person's needs. We saw with the next economy, the industrial economy, that started to shift towards the end of it, um, where we saw labor starting to get more power and forming unions. And unions had the ability to actually stop work. And companies started to look at how do we predict when uh, there might be a labor shortage so that we can figure out how to intervene. And we saw the introduction of the idea of work satisfaction and the sort of measuring are people satisfied enough to not strike? Um, and this sort of movement um, that came along with the assembly line. We then, with the information economy, which you know, emerged in the last 30 years or so, For the first time, we started to see employees have a lot more power because they were actually the means of production. They were the ones producing their their knowledge, um, their expertise of what was producing economic value, and they became much more powerful. But because they were the means of production, we wanted to economically measure um, how much output are we getting per human being. Um, We started talking about human resources, right? And engagement – was sort of designed as a frame that was about measuring discretionary effort. So basically, Wanda, if I pay you ten dollars, am I getting eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifty dollars in sort of effort for that same amount? So it's basically a measure of you as a human resource. What we're seeing now is that for the first time, in almost every industry, employees have substantially more power than employers, um, and this isn't true across every single role. But in, broadly speaking, there is a tremendously greater sort of ownership by of the individual, um, of their power, of their destiny, of what they're choosing to do. And we suddenly have to change the frame from a corporate frame, which is like, what is your economic value, to an employee-centric frame, which is um, what enables my employees to thrive, what's in their best interest, what informs their well-being. So it's part of this sort of ongoing shift as Individuals have had more and more power in the workplace, and fulfillment is that next step, where for the first time, it truly is a human-centric um, definition versus a business process question. Does that follow?
1: That makes a ton of sense. So, yeah, okay.
2: you know, as we did the research on this, we started to we wanted to help sort of pull this apart because, as, as you're asking, like a lot of people, are like, well, it's just semantic engagement, fulfillment, like tomato, tomato, like, is this really a different thing? So. We start off by just asking people, like, would you rather have an engaging job or a fulfilling job? And I don't think you'd be surprised to hear that, you know, people are more than twice as likely to want a fulfilling job. Because in our lives, we don't reflect back and say, oh, my God, I had such an engaging life. What we look for is that we want to be fulfilled in our lives. Um, and when we talk about engagement, we're really talking management speak. When we're talking fulfillment. We're talking human speak. We then asked people, like, do you really understand the difference between these? So we asked people in their own words to describe engaging work versus fulfilling work. And the key w- sort of words that popped out when you saw what they wrote about engaging, it was all about being busy. Um, it was all about this sort of sense of busyness, which is really what, uh, you know, we think, are those people engaged? It's like, are they busy? Um, it's this sort of proxy for productivity because the assumption, therefore, is they're producing more. When we saw definitions around fulfillment, we started to basically see much more of an emotional state where people are talking about connection, um, they're talking about impact, they're talking about relationships. You're starting to see more of the things that are sort of psychologically relevant to the human being. So we started to really, I think, help companies see in this data that employees really do distinguish between these two things, and they are pretty fundamentally different.
3: Okay. What well, I think it's so interesting about this, too, Wanda, just just well, I wanted to just add one more point, and that is that from the perspective of a company, yeah, you, know, you might think, well, okay, that's all fine and great, but I still have to deliver to my shareholders, right? I still have to perform myself to produce, you know, X product that I'm producing. And what's fascinating is that right. even so much as we are shifting our measure of success in the workplace to be much more human centric, you all you still see that even more so than engagement, those folks that are more fulfilled in the workplace, they are also more productive. They have a much, much higher ENPS score for your company. They're more likely to stay longer. These are all of the things that organizations measure around product around success for engagement. And so, you know, pulling up a little bit, the moral of the story is here that by focusing more on a success metric that's more human-centric, it's actually not just good for individuals that are in the ecosystem. It's also good for the organization. And by the way, it's also good for society.
1: Okay. All right, so fulfillment, about making connection, about having impact, about thriving as a human being. And you call that human-centric language because it's the, from the experience of the person and what the person wants in their life, seeks in their life. And that drives greater productivity, higher NPS, and staying longer. Okay, so let me ask the cynical question because I'm sure it's on people's minds. Is this a generational difference? Is it just millennials who are talking about fulfillment, or is this something everybody's talking about?
2: And I see it across the board. I think it's. Um we certainly have seen it in millennial generation. We've seen it, um, I think, more around life stage. The people actually talk about this most are people later in their careers who have a much clearer sense of priorities and are less trying to prove something and more trying to sort of authentically show up. So um, in our studies in the past, we've actually seen a stronger signal with people later in their careers, even than earlier stage in their careers. So it's almost the inverse of what people expect.
1: Okay. And is it also true if I have people who are feeling more fulfilled? So the emotional state that I have greater creativity and all those other metrics we care about as managers and employers?
2: Well, what we've seen, we haven't measured creativity itself, but we've measured things like collaboration um, and ability to feel confident um, bringing your full self to work, which we know from other studies are precursors to or ingredients to creativity. So it seems to put people in a better state because when you're in an engagement state, it's almost about showing you're busy. um, Whereas when you're in this state where you're actually feeling comfortable bringing your full self to work, um, that's where you're likely to get those creative juices going.
1: Okay. So then is this, I, you know, I care an awful lot about creating environments that are inclusive workplaces. As you know, that's been part of my work for a couple decades now across all aspects of inclusivity. Um, is fulfillment going to be relate, uh, direct, uh, tied to a sense of inclusive workplace? Nicole, you've been doing great work around this.
3: Yeah, I would say the relationship is that as you, what we're finding anyway, is that as you focus on fulfillment, you are actually creating greater pathways for empathy. You're creating, creating you're engineering more into the workforce relationships. Um, and those relationships and empathy, I do believe, are very, very related to things like a sense of belonging, um, feeling heard, feeling included, feeling valued. So I think the relationship is that by emphasizing one, you are ultimately um, creating the other. And, and as okay. I, we're actually seeing a lot of, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's also a more
2: inclusive way to talk about it. I think sometimes with some of these broad challenges, when we face them head-on, we meet a lot of resistance. Um, when we're actually able to change the environment and address them through things like fulfillment, um, we're hopeful it actually could have a greater impact than just creating like a diversity and inclusion program, but that actually help everyone bring their full selves to work. And it's about everyone, and it's an inclusive you know, um, campaign. And the way you do it, um, build connection between people of different backgrounds. You're creating, you're achieving the goals, I think, exceeding the goals of diversity and inclusion without sort of the polarizing labels that come with it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I just for the record, I think that we've gotten this badly wrong by saying diversity and inclusion. Diversity is, I often say, is often accounting exercise, and we have all sorts of programs to make sure that we have acquired enough diverse talent and that we're keeping that diverse talent and promoting that diverse talent. That does not necessarily go hand in hand with building an environment where individuals with different backgrounds feel that they can thrive. And I think the measure is how much I feel I can thrive, how much I feel I belong and how much I feel like I'm a part of this. Um, And it strikes me that fulfillment might be an easier way into some of these ideas than, you know, this elusive big thing called everybody feels they're included, which I don't even know how to measure when we get started. Okay. So can you give me an example of a company that is going down this route of creating fulfillment Um, How were they doing it? And you said earlier that this was the responsibility of individuals. So what does that look like in practice when we're trying to help people feel fulfilled?
3: Yeah, so what it looks like, Wanda, is leaning into what we know. So we've taken fulfillment, the whole notion of purpose and fulfillment, I think, out of art and and poetry and really put it more into science. And so now we know what Mm -hmm. the building blocks are, and we also have studied folks that are more fulfilled at work and really understood what is, it, what is it that leads them to that. And it's a couple of things. One is that they have greater self-awareness about what brings them fulfillment. And then the other thing we found, and let's get to the relationship piece, we found that these folks are having regular conversations at work about their careers, about how they feel about work, about what they want to do at work, what impact they want to have, what growth they want to have. They're actually having sort of a, a social learning experience around that. And so... Um, to answer your question, taking those two pieces of information, the things we know about that sample that is very fulfilled at work we 're now starting to see companies um, create environments where those things are possible. so two examples are um, companies giving every employee an opportunity to do essentially a, a, an assessment of what their fulfillment drivers are so really getting that self awareness and then and then the second piece of it is um, creating creating a company culture around having conversation, and it sounds so basic, Wanda, but if you think about what we've done over the past many, many decades, we have sought to do everything we can to engineer humanity right out of the workplace. You hear things like executive presence. What that is is there no, there's no emotion, there's no humanity. And so what we're, what we're trying to help companies do is actually engineer that back in. And a big part of that is creating a platform or an ecosystem where um, human kinds of conversations are now once again welcome in the workplace so that people can take control. We know from the research people want to own this. They actually see themselves as not only responsible but as the greatest obstacle to their own fulfillment. And so what we're doing is we're giving people the tools to actually overcome that um, and hack their jobs uh, for for a more fulfilling experience.
1: All right. So I can do an assessment, and I can understand what are my drivers of fulfillment. And so I've increased my awareness. But then how do I start that conversation, either with my peers or, heaven forbid, with my boss? Are there key questions I need to be asking? Are there questions the boss should be asking?
2: two different answers to that question. So I think think the first one is, you know, in our research, what we found was that um, people who are fulfilled, one of the things that separates them from other folks is they truly do lean on their peers as their support network. And we found overall that people learn more from their peers than their managers. So this is like fundamentally different frame for thinking about talent development. So if you want to approach that, you know, I think you're. First simplest option is just to go back to the three things we talked about, relationships, impact, and growth. And how do you check in with your colleagues? How do you check in with your manager? How are you regularly having conversations about those three simple topics, right? And you can do that today without, you know, working with imperative. It's something you can start doing, you know, literally today. I think the more scalable long-term solution, which we've been building is a technology platform that actually uses your personal purpose profile, one to, to connect you and match you with another employee at a company. At the company, and then it actually is able to um, create a facilitator's guide that's dynamic, that's um, based on a topic that you want to talk about. So, for example, it could be about unconscious bias. You and I want to have a conversation about unconscious bias. Because we have your purpose profile in our system, we can customize that conversation so I know exactly what questions to ask you, Wanda, and you know exactly what questions to ask me in a specific sequence that's based on psychology of communication and building trust. So that by the end of a you know half an hour to an hour conversation, um, we've built a really strong connection between us, but we've also processed um, a really important topic in a way in which it really is more likely to stick. And this system has been built so that you can have it on any topic. I mean, you can go from something like unconscious bias to if your corporation has a set of values, um, let's roll out the values um, to each employee so they're matched with someone to actually talk about what does that value mean to me. Um, So it's a whole new way of enabling people to communicate with each other on a massive scale that's going to change cultures and change careers in an organization very quickly.
1: I can imagine that if I've got teams scattered around the globe or a team scattered around the globe as a manager, and one of the challenges is how they actually get that some of these technologically structured conversations around topics we're all talking about at work could be a really handy, very different way of getting people to get to know each other um, and trade across all the common differences of language and culture and time zones. Okay.
2: No, it's been really we've designed it specifically for that and being able to have that kind of video um, interface to go back and forth. And we finding in research, we've not that we've done ourselves, but in secondary research that one of the main issues of flexible work and remote work is that people are feeling really isolated and that that need for relationships is just not there. It's not being met. Um, so for organizations that do have, you know, distributed workforces, um, being able to build these real connections is so important. And so is dropping this engagement language because, um, When you're having a conversation like this, it doesn't look like engagement. It's not about busyness. It's about reflection and being able to have a conversation that has emotional content to it. So it's creating that space as well um, for fulfillment to actually take hold.
1: Right. I think people sitting next to each other being so busy are not feeling pretty isolated as well. I don't know that. I mean, I know people who are remote and working flexibly are feeling isolated. I don't think they're the only ones that are feeling it as well. All right. So let's turn to some practical tips. Um, I want to talk first about a leader who's in the midst of a company and just wants to create a greater sense of purpose and fulfillment for his or her team. And let's say they're not going to hire you to come and help them, though that would be a handy solution. What are your top tips for that leader about what to do?
2: Nicole, what would you share?
3: Uh, One of of the things I would go back to is just, again, the building blocks. I mean, I've, I've said it before, and, and I can't tell you how often this comes back to us. So those are relationships, impact, and growth. And so as a leader, you you have the ability to, at any given time to pulse your team on how they're actually feeling. We have leaders do this, and it doesn't cost anything, and it's something that can take 10 minutes in a team meeting, and just asking your team um, on a scale of one to five, you know, are you feel, do you have meaningful relationships at work? Are you making an impact that's meaningful to you? And are you are you having growth opportunities on a regular basis? That is a, that's a starting point for a dramatically different type of conversation. And just that little that little adjustment introducing that conversation can have a, a pretty big impact on a culture. On an individual level, I will say to you, I've had so many of my clients come back to me and say, "No, I was just having an off week a month ago." And so I just paused and I did a rig assessment. I asked myself, I checked in with myself on my RING and I actually identified that I hadn't done anything new in, you know, six months. And I realized I needed to do something about that and I did. And it had this very positive impact on my work. And so I would say the simplest possible thing is just, that's that, for, my, for my money. I, I, I open it up to Aaron as well. But for my money, I the simplest possible thing is just start leading into relationships, impact and growth for the team.
1: So it's asking the team, asking presumably individuals on the team, are you having relationships that are meaningful to you? Are you having impact that's meaningful to you? And are you having opportunities for growth? Opportunities for growth, by the way, doesn't mean necessarily a new job. It just means an opportunity to stretch your thinking or to learn something new. I can do that as an individual and I can do that as a manager for a team. So Erin, how about for you? What's your top tip for a leader?
2: I think one is modeling. Um, I think what we've seen in our research is that if people don't perceive a leader as being purpose-driven, it has a very strong impact on that team and their ability to feel comfortable showing up fully. So, as a leader, one of the first things that I would, you know, recommend is to reflect on what you're messaging to your team. Um, are you messaging sort of what to do? Or are you also messaging why to do it? Are you messaging that work is just a transaction um, versus are you messaging that what the organization does is important beyond sort of a financial transaction? That seems to make a really big difference. Um, just being able to, to communicate that way. Um, another one is really to model it through storytelling. So to be able to speak to, building off Nicole's points, like what are the relationships that have made a difference for you? Share that with your team. Um, If there's people who are important relationships for you, make sure they know that. Um, Share stories about the kind of impact that happened in your career, the last week, whatever that timeline is, regularly with your team to say why that was meaningful to you. And share examples of when you felt like you really were stretched, you know, grown, you know, across your career, but also, you know, in the last week. Model that idea that you the a leader, um, have taken responsibility for those things and created those opportunities. And through that kind of storytelling, it's much more powerful than just simply laying out a framework because um, it, it gives people that, the context um, and that sense that it's more than just lip service.
1: Right. I find those kind of stories, whether it's about those three or something else, are the things that allow your team to actually connect with you as a human being. And when you're telling those stories, that's when people see you as being more authentic, quote unquote. So I think that's interesting. So stories about relationships that's made a difference to you, stories about time that you've had an impact in your career, stories about time that you've been stretched along the way. Um. How about advice for individuals? So, Nicole, you started with this with just do an individual assessment of how am I feeling about the, relation, the meaningfulness of the relationships, the meaning and the impact that I'm having on the growth opportunities. Do you have any other tips for individuals to have a stronger sense of purpose at work?
3: Yeah, my, my- The second step of that would very much be then actually sharing it with somebody else, so having a conversation about it. So when you find that actually you're not scoring very high on your impact, the next thing I can do is, you know, grab a colleague and have a conversation about it. And one of the things I wanted to go back to that you said earlier, Wanda, as, as, from the leader's perspective, is doing that and checking in with your team on an individual basis. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think it's really powerful to do that as a group because, to Aaron's point, what you're essentially doing is you're destigmatizing the whole conversation around fulfillment by doing it as a group, and you're also building relationships um, in and amongst your team members, which, again, is, is what we know is a building block, so... So okay. it's an individual tip and, a, and, a, and a, another leadership for you.
1: Fabulous! So having the group talk about the meaningfulness of relationships, the meaning and the impact, and the growth opportunities. Okay, Aaron. Last couple of minutes. What's your advice for individuals about how to have a greater sense of fulfillment at work? I, think
2: it, I mean, it all begins with it all begins with mindset. So you need to start with understanding that. Um, you own your experience in the world and you make choices about not only what you do, but how you process what happens to you. And a good day and a bad day often has much more to do with you than anyone else. Um, And unless you start off with that fundamental sort of understanding of your ownership and responsibility in this equation, um, you're going to get sucked into a victimization model. um, And you're just going to also just become sort of passive in the process. So I think that's critical. I think the second one is... You know, as part of that is really realizing that um, work is not just about a paycheck. Work has the ability to be a place for meaningful relationships, to make an impact, and to grow in small ways and um, big ways. And um, being able to see that in the work you're doing today, even if it's on the most small scale, but to see that glimmer of that in the work you're doing, um, to see that possibility, and to get out of this um, mindset that just sees work as a transaction is absolutely critical. So it's something to constantly sort of keep yourself in check when you see something happening. So like, did I take ownership of that? What was my role in that? And am I making assumptions about work um, that are actually becoming self-fulfilling prophecies? These two things are critical to create that right, for frame of mind um, going into work, and it's something that doesn't ever end. I mean, I still find myself regularly on my commute and other processes, like when I'm getting frustrated, you know, asking myself those questions um, and that being really critical. And then I think the next piece, which Nicole hit on, I mean, the people who are most successful are the ones that have a network of intimate connections within their organization for whom they can have regular, honest conversations and reflect. Um, one of the things, just to sort of end on, Wanda, that no job itself is meaningful. The, the act of creating meaning actually comes from reflection. It's about looking at something you've done and com- um, comparing it to something you did in the past or something you want to do in the future. It's that process of analysis and reflection that creates that sense of meaning, and you need people that you can do that with. So, you know, I'd really challenge people to think about, you know, how many people do you have in the organization that you regularly can just sort of sit down and, like, really process and reflect on um, experiences, what you're going through, what you want to be doing. Um, you know, I think we're finding that, you know, people should have three, you know, three to five people that they regularly can have that kind of relationship with, and yet most people have none.
1: Great. Erin, Nicole, we're out of time. My guest today, Erin Hurst with Imperative and the author of The Purpose Economy and the author of Fast Company's Purposeful CEO Series. And Nicole Rush, who is Imperative's head of enterprise purpose strategy. Thank you both. I think the thing that's most exciting about this conversation for me is the shift from what the company is doing that has a sense of purpose to what it is that I'm doing as an individual that leaves me feeling fulfilled in the ways in which we can begin to have those conversations as managers and as individuals and take ownership for fulfillment coming from the relationships, the impact, and the opportunities for growth. Thank you both. Exciting times.
2: Thank you. Thank
1: you, Wanda. All right, and join us next week for more wisdom on getting out of your comfort zone.